Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see your faces. Well, thank you. Good to be here. I wasn't sure halfway through the week. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and uh, we're so grateful and we're so thankful, Lord, for your powerful love, uh, Lord, that overwhelms us, that envelops us, Lord. Uh, we think of the portion of Scripture where Jesus, uh, standing on the Mount of Olives before he entered into Jerusalem, weeping over her and, and saying, how long I've sought to gather you to myself as a mother hen collects her chicks, Father. And, and we, that's exactly where we want to be, Father, in the shadow of your wings, Lord. We want to be right where we belong, Father, in the presence of uh, our Heavenly Father and His glorious Son, Jesus Christ, and all brought possible, Father, by that unity we have through the power of the Spirit, Lord. We pray that you would fill this place, that you'd fill our hearts, Lord, and that you would give us an understanding, a spiritual understanding beyond ourselves, Lord, uh, to be able to comprehend, Father, the things that you've given for us to understand, Lord, uh, and also to accept the things, Lord, that maybe you're a bit beyond us, Lord, that we have to just trust and have faith in you over, Lord. We pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would train us this morning, and I pray that each person here would receive from you today, Father, a portion of their daily bread, Lord, something that only you can give them, uh, something that only you know, Father, and I pray that you'd bless them, that you'd be with their families, and that you'd be with their homes, and that you'd be with them wherever they go, Father, with throughout this week, and that your face would continue to shine upon them. And Father, we want to be used by you uh, in this generation that we live in, Lord, where we see so much darkness, so much confusion, so much hatred, so much sadness, so much anger. Uh, Lord, and we want to be able to rise above that, Lord, and we confess to you that we're unable to without the power of the Spirit, without your help. We don't want our loves to grow, our love to grow cold, Father. We want to remain on fire for the things of Jesus, Lord, and for the truth of your word. And wherever we go, we want to carry the love of Christ with us. Help us to be those people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Deuteronomy, uh, we are picking up in chapter 3. And um, we're going to be talking again today about the Giants. Not the New York Giants. Had it with them. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about the giants of the scriptures, and 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 I think we're going to, uh, for the most part, put them to rest for a little bit for a little while. But this is one of those this portions of scripture. This is one of those areas um, that we're given some pieces, we're given some some things, and there's enough there to make you know that there's something going on. There is something to all of this. We don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. We certainly don't know everything. Um, but there's something there that is is beneath the surface when it comes to when it comes to these giants uh, that were that were in the land that the scripture talks about and that teaches us about. And I want to go over that a little bit today, and uh, and and hopefully get into what that means for you and I, what that means to us, how we can apply these things to our lives. So Deuteronomy chapter three begins. Uh, then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, 
all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Silcah and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained from the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. So, once again, we have this strange portion of scripture where the Bible delves into this idea that were giants that were in the land. And this is not a figurative giant. This is not a, a, a spiritualized giant. The scripture is speaking here of actual giants. And that might be hard for some people to swallow. In fact, it's hard for a lot of people to, really, really? Giants? Giants in the land. What kind of giants? So Andre the giant, right? Or what are you talking about? Minute bowl. You know, like those kind of giants. Are you talking about actual real life giants? Well, I want to read to you uh, a couple of excerpts from uh, some archaeological findings that were, that were found many, many years ago. Things that are written in history. And you got to understand too, okay, what the scripture says about this world. The whole world, the Bible says, lies under the sway of the evil one. How much of the whole world might the whole world be? The whole world, right? Understand and know this, that at all times and in all places and everywhere you go, the enemy is at work to distract you. The enemy is at work to divide us. The enemy is at work to cause as many people to be discouraged from following after God, from believing in the things of God as he possibly can. The Bible talks in Revelation about the devil knowing that his time is short. And so he goes out at a fever pitch to try to cause as much destruction and damage as he possibly can. And this is one of the reasons that we always talk about the importance of the Christian life for each one of us to be seeking after, to be desiring, to be walking in the light as he is in the light and so that we can have fellowship with one another and so that the blood of Jesus Christ can be continually washing us clean from our sins. It is absolutely important. It is imperative in the life of the Christian that we, walk, that we be walking in the light so that we can properly and correctly deal with the people in this world who are not walking in the light because they don't have the light. It is the job of the church, and that is you and I, to be the light, to be that city that is on a hill that cannot be hidden, to be the salt of the earth. And everything that is out there, and you know this from, from any kind of uh, educational programming that you may watch, those of you who have been to high school and some of you have been to college, they're not exactly Bible-friendly in these places, okay? They're, they're, they're not, you're not going to find a class, okay, at SUNY whatever, 
right? Or, or, or most universities or any university other than a Christian university, uh, and even many of them you're not going to find a course or a class that's going to be talking about that how Christians can have faith and trust that the Word of God is real, that it's true, that the things that it proclaims, the things that it said, and the things that it teaches are true, that we can believe that the Word of God is exactly that, and that the things that were written there actually took place, you're not finding that anywhere. Instead, what we see throughout the world, it's not just, it's not just people saying, I don't believe right? Because that's okay. That's understandable. I, people have a right to believe how they want to believe. Someone uh, just this weekend talking to a group of people, and one person in particular said, I just don't believe any of this stuff. I just don't believe any of this stuff. And my response was, well, let me tell you something. No. My response was, okay, that's where you're at. My prayer for you is that God would open your eyes. My prayer for you is that God would reveal himself to you. It's not my job to do that. I can't make anybody believe. I can't force anybody to understand. That's a work that God has to do. That's a work that God has to do. But not only is it people saying, I don't believe how you believe, that would be okay. You know, when we have our motocross camp, one of the things that we tell the parents right at the beginning of, of the camp is that whether or not you believe in all of this Jesus stuff, whether or not you believe in the Bible and whether or not you agree with any of this and whether or not you want any of this for your life, we are still going to be here for you. We are still going to love you. We're still going to love on your kids. And we're still going to provide for you everything that we can to make this week a blessing to you and also to make ourselves available to you beyond this camp at any time that you should need us because that's what followers of Jesus Christ do, right? You don't have to believe. It's not a prerequisite. Belief is not a prerequisite for us to love people, right? You know, it's easy. It's easy to love people who are in the truth and you have that fellowship in the light and with the spirit. But sometimes, right, people who are on the other side of things, it's easy to become contemptible towards them, to have a feeling of contempt towards them, to have that feeling of automatic judgment towards them. That's not the heart of God. But what we're seeing in the world today, and it's been around for many, many years, but I think it's growing and growing and increasing and increasing, it's that if you do believe in the Bible, if you do believe in the things of God, if you don't prescribe to the teachings and the philosophies of the men of this world, then not only, it used to be just you're an idiot, right? Which that's okay. I've been told that by a lot of people, right? You're an idiot. You're a moron. That's okay. I can deal with that. But now it's getting to the place where you're a bad person. You're a bad person. If you don't agree and if you don't go along with a lot of the philosophies that the world are, preaching, are, are teaching that goes against what the Scripture teaches, you are a bad person. Well, what does the Scripture teaches us? teach us? That in the last days, evil will be taken for good and good will be taken for evil. So it's no surprise. We should not be surprised that these things are happening and that we see these things happening. It shouldn't dissuade us. It shouldn't discourage us in any way. But we should all the more cling to the truth of God's Scripture. But know this and understand this. And when we watched, I can't remember what creation movie it was that we watched, but they talked about the fact that you can have two scientists, one who's a creation scientist and one who is a, 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 a material evolution, a evolutionary scientist, and you can show them the exact same piece of evidence the exact same piece of evidence, and they're going to come away the one saying, well, it totally supports evolution. 
And the other one's going to say, well, it totally supports the uh, creation story and a worldwide flood theory and whatever story and whatever the case may be. The bottom line is, is it always comes down to faith. It always comes down to faith. Remember when Jesus gave the, uh, told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and when they both died and Lazarus went to the place of uh, the righteous, to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was sent to the place of torment in hell, and he has this conversation with Father Abraham, and he says, send me back from this place. Send me back only so that I might tell my brothers about this place, for I am in agony here. And Abraham gives them this very important piece of Scripture that Jesus was teaching his disciples and you and I. They have the law and the prophets. What was he saying? They have the Bible. They have the Word of God. And if they don't believe the Word of God, even if one were to come back from the dead, they would not believe. And we know, in fact, Jesus was not just saying that to make a point. He was also prophesying about the fact that he was going to come back from the dead. There is no grave that holds the body of Jesus. There wasn't then, and there isn't now. And still, the people as a whole were not going to believe. Everything must come from faith. Everything must come from faith. If you are relying on your intellect, or if you are relying on your feelings, because faith isn't a feeling... Faith comes by knowing the Word of God and putting it to action in your heart. The Bible talks about faith being things, uh, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's a substance and there's an evidence that's there as your faith is given to God. But faith is a gift from God. Okay? I hope I'm not getting too, too, too confusing here out in the weeds. Everything comes back to faith. You have faith, you don't have faith. So that's how I want us to approach this. But there are, there are historical things that we can look to that to support the scriptures. So uh, I want to read you this excerpt. Uh, most of Og's kingdom that we read about here is located in present-day Syrian and Lebanon, Syria and Lebanon, and thus excavation teams are not permitted to enter to search for the remnants and relics of his 60-city empire. However, in the 19th century, explorer Josiah Porter found the former kingdom of Og and recorded his findings in the book, and here's the book he wrote, The Giant Cities of Bashan. And here's what he said. Now the houses of Kiriath and other towns in Bashan appear to be just such dwellings as a race of giants would build. The walls, the roofs, but especially the ponderous gates Doors and bars are in every way characteristic of a period when architecture was in its infancy, when giants were masons, and when strength and security were the grand requisites. I measured a door in Kiriath. It was nine feet high, four and a half feet wide, and ten inches thick, one solid slab of stone. I saw the folding gates of another town in the mountains still larger and heavier. Time produces little effect on such buildings as these. The heavy stone slabs of the roofs resting on the massive walls make the structure as firm as if built of solid masonry, and the black basalt used is almost as hard as iron. There can scarcely be a doubt, therefore, that these are the very cities erected and inhabited by the Rephaim. 
the, the aboriginal occupants of Bashan, and the language of Ritter appears to be true. These buildings remain as eternal witnesses of the conquest of Bashan by Jehovah. Um, <clears throat> given the massive defensive advantage provided by his city walls, Og's decision to leave his cities and enter into open combat with Israel seems questionable. Why take the risk when his armies could remain behind these walls and these fortified cities for the Israelites to try and lay siege to? The book of Joshua provides insight. As you went over Jordan and came into Jericho and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorite, but not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. That's Joshua 24, 11 and 12. So what was the mysterious hornet of this passage? Renowned theologian Matthew Henry wrote, hosts of hornets made way for the hosts of Israel. Such mean creatures can God make use of for the chastising of his people's enemies. And is, as in the plagues of Egypt, when God pleases, hornets can drive out Canaanites as well as lions could. Matthew Henry's commentary on the Old and New Testament. Recall that in the book of Exodus, God used frogs and flies to unleash plagues that eventually brought the Egyptian army to ruin. So the hornets in this instance were a weapon used to flush Og's forces from behind his walls and into open space where the Lord could reduce his forces to a number suitable for the Israelites to utterly vanquish them. Now, some of you have heard Dad talk about Flavius Josephus. He was a very famous historian who was actually a contemporary of Jesus Christ, and he was employed by Rome to give accounts of certain aspects of history. And Flavius Josephus, uh, in his most famous work, The Antiquities of the Jews, he recounts the history of the Israelites and remarked on the greatness of King Og. Here's what Josephus said. When matters are come to this state, Og, the king of Gilead, and, and Gualanitis fell upon the Israelites. He brought an army with him and in haste to the assistance of his friend Sihon. Now, the end of chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, Dad just finished this morning, was recounting the conquest of Sihon uh, and his people by the Israelites. And Og followed on his heels. Uh, let's see, sorry. Uh, and hasty the assistance of his friend Sion. But though he found him already slain, yet did he resolve still to come and fight the Hebrews, supposing he should be too hard for them, and being desirous to try their valor, but failing of his hope. He was both himself slain in the battle, and all his army was destroyed. So Moses passed over the brook Jabbok and overran the kingdom of Og. He overthrew their cities and slew all their inhabitants. Um, who yet exceeded in riches all the men in that part of the, of the con continent on account of the goodness of the soil and the great quantity of their wealth. Now, Og had very few equals, either in the largeness of his body or handsomeness of his appearance. I don't know how Josephus knew that, but that's, he's writing it 2,000 years ago. He was also a man of great activity in the use of his hands so that his actions were not unequal to the vast largeness and handsome, uh, handsome appearance of his body. 
And men could easily guess at his strength and magnitude when they took his bed at Rabbath, the royal city of the Ammonites. In other words, after he was slain, his bed was taken and set up basically in, in, in like a museum for people to come and stare at and wonder at. Its structure was of iron, its breadth four cubits, and its length a cubit more than double thereto. However, his fall did not only improve the circumstances of the Hebrews for the present, but by his death, he was the occasion of further good success to them, for they presently took those 60 cities, which were encompassed with excellent walls and had been subject to him and all got both in general and in particular a great prey. Antiquities of the Jews, 5.3, Flavius Josephus. So these are historical writings. There is, history, and there's a, there is a whole bunch more stuff that I want to bore you guys with when it comes to the giants, this, this idea of giants. When back in Genesis, we talked about uh, some of the writings even of, of uh, um, Buffalo Bill Cody when he was going across the plains and he was with a group of Native Americans and supposedly one of them brought a femur, uh, a bone to him that was like three, four feet in length. And his surgeon who was there with him examined the bone and said, this is a human leg bone. Uh, I think it was the Pawnee, the tribe of the Pawnee. And they went on to tell him how many, many moons ago, there was a race of giants that lived in this land, but they mocked the great spirit. And so the great spirit sent a mighty flood. And in order to escape the floodwaters, they fled to the mountains, but the floodwaters reached even over the tops of the mountains. And so none of them survived. Okay, now this is in the Americas, and this is a legend of the Pawnee. And as you go through, and you ha this is where we have to be careful, Christians. This is kind of a school, school day today. This is where we have to be very careful when you're studying these things. And we have to always remember, keep the main thing the main thing, right? The things that are in the scriptures that God gives us little bits of, and little hints of, and little pieces of that are wildly fascinating, like this idea of giants, and in the book of Job, when he talks about behemoth and Leviathan and, and some of these other accounts, and, and it's very easy to get off in the weeds on. You understand what I'm saying? The important thing is not exactly what these giants looked like or what they were about or what they did or where they lived. What's important is what the Word of God has to say. What is the message of the Word of God? Now, we know that from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, there was enmity between God and and there was enmity between God and Lucifer. And Lucifer, seeing God create man and woman in his image and put them in the midst of the garden only to have fellowship with them, immediately from the start, since Satan's fall, his object was to, was to destroy that which God loves, to separate that which God loves from himself. That's been Satan's desire. The Bible says he was a murderer from the beginning. Remember Jesus said that? Talking to the religious hypocrites, he said, you belong to your father, the devil. You imagine that church service. He was a murderer from the beginning. Always from the very beginning, Satan's desire has been to destroy that which God loves by any means necessary, by any means possible. And the easiest way, the most efficient way for him to do that was to introduce rebellion into the hearts of men. Because remember, that's exactly how Satan fell. When he was an archangel in heaven, the scripture talks about it in Isaiah, that his, uh, his name was Lucifer. He was a created being of God, the highest of the angels. And at some point in time, he decided in his heart that he was going to ascend to an equal footing with God's throne. And that was the original sin that cast him down, that turned him from being an archangel into what we call the devil or Satan. 
And there's nowhere written in scriptures anywhere, any idea whatsoever that Satan or the other fallen angels that are called demons ever change their appearance. You know what I'm saying? Like in our literature and in some of our fantasy uh, books and movies and stuff like that, every time you see the devil or the demons, they're horrifying, right? They're absolutely horrifying, whether it's the horns and the, the forked tail and the cloven hooves and, uh, or, or whether it's just monstrous beings. There's nothing in Scripture anywhere ever that talks about them changing appearance. In fact, the Bible says that Satan appears as what? An angel of light. I'm going to say that again. The Bible says that Satan appears as an angel of light. In other words, at first glimpse, if you were able to glimpse Satan himself, you would see him as an angel of light. There's nothing about him that would look insidious or evil until he spoke. And if you know the word, you would immediately know, just like Jesus in the 40 days of temptation, of, of fasting and then of temptation, he knew immediately because of knowing the word of God that Satan was Satan, right? And so that's the, that's the way that we know. Again, Satan is always, always, always working to separate you from God, and he will use your feelings, he will use your emotions, he will use something that may appear to you to be very, very good in this world to separate you from God. Remember, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to the very first instance of Satan's interaction with mankind, and he questions the word of God. He questions that God said something. Then he questions the truth behind what God said. And then he tells them that what God said will certainly not happen. And the Bible says that when they saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and also desirous for gaining wisdom and knowledge and understanding, then they took an aid of it. We have no idea what kind of fruit it looked like, what it was, what, anything about it. Everyone says an apple. Poor apples. You know what I mean? Like, why is it, why an apple? I don't think it is probably something that we've never seen of or heard of or anything like that. But originally, that was Satan's first, first, first attempt successfully to separate man from God through rebellion and through sin. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, excuse me, let me back up. In Genesis chapter 3, verses, in verse 15, in the garden, directly after the fall, when God is going through and he's passing judgment on mankind and on Satan for what he had done, here's what he says uh, to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I like the versions better to say he will crush your head, but we can take that. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy in the scripture of the, that Jesus Christ was going to come. Remember, the Bible calls Jesus Christ the lamb who was slain, when? From the foundations of the earth. In other words, God knew before he ever even created man that there was going to be a fall and that there was going to be need of a savior. And so he gives this prophecy to Satan, no less telling him, you're going to bruise his heel, he's going to crush your head. And he said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. We know we're talking about the virgin birth because a woman doesn't have the seed. So he was speaking of the virgin birth. Now, fast forward to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 4. 1 to 4, it says this, and this is right before the flood. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose, 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, notice, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So this is the beginning of this idea of the Nephilim, what's called the Nephilim, these giants born of supernatural means. Now, people say, you know, Pastor Frank, can it get much worse in the, in the world today before Jesus comes back? Can it get much worse? Well, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think that demons are materializing and having children with women yet. Think of the level of darkness. Remember, right after the flood, Right after the flood, the floodwaters recede, the ark sets up on Mount Ararat, and God tells them to spread out throughout the world, but instead they go down into the valley into what's modern-day Babylon near Iraq and begin to build that tower, the Tower of Babel, remember? And God says nothing that they do will be impossible for them, and that's where he confuses their languages and spreads them out throughout the world. They weren't just building a tall building. Uh, most historians and theologians believe that this was some sort of an astrological spiritual or uh, it was steeped in spiritism and you have the history of nimrod and it there's there's a tremendous amount of things there there was a lot more going on and that's why god scattered them he had just destroyed planet earth and he gives this account of the sons of god which had to be fallen angels having children with 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 women and that they were giants of old men of renowned and then we fast forward to this portion of scripture uh, where we are in Deuteronomy chapter 3, talking about Sihon, talking about Og. Now, before we get back to that, I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, this is what Peter says. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment. And he goes on from there to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and to talk about um, uh, the flood. Now, in, in Jude chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, here's what Jude says. And he's speaking in the same way as Peter was. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. Now, understand that Jude here is making the correlation, the connection between the fallen angels who left their abode and Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's how they're alike. Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude here is making allusion again, just as Peter did, to this, this, this blurb that we're given all the way back in Genesis of this incident that happened where fallen angels somehow had children with women. And as the children of Israel are coming into the land of Canaan, and a, a few 
weeks back, we were talking about this, and I think I mistakenly said that God had told the children of Israel, every town you go to, wipe everybody out. But that's not exactly what God did at all. There were specific towns that God directed them to where God said, wipe every single inhabitant out. And these are some of the scriptures that people balk at and have trouble with, where it says, why, why did God direct the children of Israel to wipe out men, women, and children? When you go back to Genesis, and the Bible talks about this, 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 uh, this situation with the fallen angels and women, right after that, when the Bible begins to talk about Noah, this is what it says of Noah, that he was perfect in his generations. Uh, and the idea is there that Noah, his bloodline, his family was not polluted with the seed of these Nephilim, of these fallen ones. Now, again, we're getting into some deep, deep, deep water here, all right? And, and I'm just, the, the only point I'm trying to make is that this stuff is written up in the Bible. There is history to support these things, and we can have faith in what the Word of God says as believers. I want to read something else for you. Uh, there are several people groups described as giants or among whom giants lived in the Old Testament. There are the Anakim, who are descendants from the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, also compared to Numbers 13, 33, and whom the people of Israel encountered under Moses and later under Joshua. That was the Anakim. At one time, before the children of Israel traveled through the Transjordan, the land to the east of the Jordan River was heavily populated with tall people known as Emim. That's Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11. And the Zamzumim, also called the, Zu, the, the Zuzim, <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 20. The reason they were called the Zamzumim was the first time people saw them, they went, Zam, Zoom. Uh, sorry. Um, <clears throat> The, the Amorites, another group that stood in the way of Israel claiming the promised land, is described as being exceptionally tall. Amos chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. It talks about them being as tall as cedar trees, in fact. Lastly, there were the Rephaim, which are mentioned nearly 20 times, most often in association with the conquest of the promised land, when Moses encountered Og, King Og of Bashan, whose bed measured to 13 feet in length. And that's Deuteronomy 2.11, uh, verses 20 to 22, Deuteronomy chapter 3.11 to 13, and Joshua 12.4 and 13.13. 13. Now, here's where it gets interesting. We know about Sihon, we know about Og, but as we fast forward into the conquest of Canaan, then we're going to go through the book of Judges, and then we're going to get into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the rule of King David, okay? And you all know the story of David and Goliath, right? Goliath was Rephaim. The Bible talks about this. He and the four giant warriors listed alongside him are descended from Rapha in Gath. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 22, and 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 8. If Rapha is interpreted as a proper name, Rapha, then the four warriors were all brothers of Goliath. The biblical text does not actually say this. Only one of these men, Lami, is specifically said to be the brother of Goliath. Therefore, it is best to translate the term as giants or Rephaim, as many English translations do. Some of the Rephaim giants, therefore, survived the wars of Moses and Joshua, and their descendants settled in the Philistine city of Gath. 
And the other warriors who accompanied Goliath may not have been brothers, but they were all part of an enduring and unusual lineage that challenged Israel for their land and opposed their God. Now, going all the way back to Genesis, where God said to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and then the seed of the woman. You're going you're gonna to bruise his heel. He's going to bruise or crush your head. Satan understood the prophecy of the Messiah, the prophecy of Jesus Christ, right from the book of Genesis, right from the book of Genesis. And it's just exactly like him, in my opinion. This is exactly like Satan to then go out and seek to pollute the very bloodline that would bring forth Jesus Christ. And so you have this strange occurrence where somehow these fallen angels have relationships with human women and have children by them, and they spread out from there. There's later in Genesis, during the time of Abraham, uh, remember when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they went out and fought against, um, oh man, I can't remember what the guy's king's name was, but that king had fought against the Rephaim, it says. He's talking about, remember, earlier in, in Deuteronomy, it talks about these, some of these giants had already been pushed out by the descendants of Lot, had been pushed out by the descendants of Esau. So there was this idea that Satan had sought to spread this polluted seed as much as he could throughout that region. And it's only a guess, but the possibility there is that what Satan was actually trying to do was to pollute the bloodline so much as to prevent Jesus Christ from being born. Remember, a bloodline polluted by that of demons, the Son of God could never come through. And so the first judgment we see on that is the flood, when God sends a worldwide flood to wipe them out. Now, the question remains, how were there still giants? How were there still these Nephilim in the world after the flood if God sent a world? There's, and there's many, many different, you can do some research on that. There's a whole bunch of different ideas about it. One being that the, 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 it was actually believed that, um, some people believe that Og actually was that old. He went back to the flood and that he held onto the ark. None of that makes a lot of sense to me. It seems to me that what happened before the flood, when you get to the land of Canaan, remember that Abraham was told by God, I'm not sending you into Canaan yet. It's going to be your land, but it's going to be your descendants' land. I'm not sending you in there yet. Why? Because the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. And so the idea there is that the Canaanites, the land of Canaan, became so dark and so evil and so steeped in demonology that this happened again, where fallen angels literally were having children with women. We're not given that, though, in the Scriptures, so we don't know that for a fact. But either way, either way, these giants who are not just big, giant people, big, large men, okay? I mean, Manute Bowl, right? Remember Manute Bowl is like seven foot six or something like that? Like uh, imposing on a basketball court. Are you scared of Manute Bowl, right? We're talking about a 10, 12, 13 foot Mike Tyson. Now that's scary. You know what I'm saying? Five foot 10 Mike Tyson's scary. Can you imagine a 13 foot tall? And we have, we have no, we, you know, we don't know, but just from Josephus, uh, his, his explanation of Og, king of Bashan, there was indeed something that happened here where there was this race of giants and it came directly from interaction with demons and God specifically set out to destroy them all. First with the flood, but then later, when the children of Israel drew near Canaan, certain inhabitants, certain areas, he told them, don't go in at all. 
other certain areas he told, I want you to drive out the inhabitants of this land, drive them out, drive them out. And still others, God said, I want you to go in there and I want you to wipe out everyone. I want you to wipe every single one of them out, men, women, and children. Hard for us to swallow. But there's a possibility there that that's exactly what God was doing. And after the conquest of Canaan, there were still, still descendants of Rephaim because we read about it in Samuel when King David fought against Goliath, and then later him and his mighty again fought against other giants who the Bible says were descendants of Rephaim. God went out of his way to go after these giants, to go after this race uh, that had been spawned from interaction with demons and wipe them out. It's interesting to me, and we're going to finish with this. I uh, hope I haven't bored you guys to death. It, it's interesting to me in Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, verse 31, it says this, this Moses writing, and the Lord said to me, see, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it that you may inherit his land. Um, let's see, but I want to back up here. I'm sorry. Just as he had done and rise, take your journey. Here he is, verse 24 of chapter 2. Sorry, Deuteronomy 2, 24. God says to Moses, rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Now, wait a second. God had just told Moses, I want you to go in, I want you to engage Sihon in battle, and I want you to possess it. Moses turns around and begins to make a peace treaty with Sihon. He tries to make peace with them. We're going to come through, we're going to pass through, we're going to buy from you the things that we need, we're not going to bother anything. That's not what God told him. God specifically told him, I want you to go in there, and I want you to take possession of that land. And, and uh, as we read, Sihon had no interest in peace with Moses or with the children of Israel, and he actually came out to make battle against them, and they were defeated by the children of Israel. And God uses this for another purpose. After Sihon is defeated, and after Og, the king of Bashan, are, beat, are beaten, after they're destroyed, remember, because we're going to get to this soon, by the time the children of Israel come to Jericho, right? And the, the, the walls of Jericho after Moses has passed away and gone to be with the Lord and Joshua takes over and they come to that battle of Jericho with the high and fortified walls. Remember, the people of Jericho are absolutely petrified of the children of Israel. They are absolutely, absolutely mortified and petrified at the presence of the children of Israel. Remember, when they go into the city, they sneak into the city, and Rahab takes them in and hides them, and she tells them, These, we are absolutely afraid of you. We are scared to death of you. Well, no wonder. No wonder, because they had taken out Sihon, king of the Amorites, and they'd taken out Og, king of Bashan, and all 60 of those cities that God had given into their hands. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Uh, your word, Lord God, and uh, I pray, Lord, that this would <laughs> somehow help somebody, Lord, maybe to have a little more faith in what your word says. And uh, Lord, we ask and pray, Lord, that you'd give us hearts of, um, of courage, Lord, and faith, and to not be afraid in our own lives, Father, of engaging the battles of our lives. Uh, Lord, we ask and pray, Father, that your will would be accomplished and done through us. 
uh, Lord, in the world today, Lord, certainly not in a physical battle sense, Lord, but spiritually, Lord, as we see so much darkness around us, Lord, and so many strongholds in people's hearts and lives and in our own, in our own nation, Lord, and around the world, that, uh, Lord, you would give us hearts of courage, Lord, uh, and that we would prayerfully be asking you and, and be considering how we might be used of you, Lord God, to break down strongholds uh, and to defeat some of these spiritual giants that are at work in the world today, Father. So uh, we praise you. We thank you, Lord God. Have your way in us. Uh, Lord, be with us in all that we do, Lord, this week. We ask that, Lord God, that your will would be made apparent to us in each of our hearts, Father, and that we would have uh, the faith to follow after you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, everybody.